0: I would have thought advocating around securing our systems is in the interests of national security.
1: If the people of Australia, through their parliament, are to continue to grant new laws and new powers to these agencies, then those agencies need to be able to articulate the case clearly in public, why those powers are needed.
2: Welcome to the National Security Podcast, brought to you by the ANU National Security College, with support from PolicyForum.net. In this program, Lizzie O'Shea, co-founder and chair of Digital Rights Watch, and Dominique Della Pozza, senior lecturer at the ANU College of Law, join Will Stoltz to discuss the state of electronic surveillance in Australia, with a focus on two new, powerful pieces of legislation. Before we get into it, we'd like to acknowledge the Ngunnawal people, traditional owners of the land from which we broadcast. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging.
3: Well, Dom Della La Potza and Lizzie O'Shea, welcome to the podcast.
0: Thanks so much for having us, Will. Thanks,
1: Will.
3: It's great to have you both join us for this important discussion about uh, electronic surveillance in Australia, because uh, Parliament's recently passed two new laws expanding the powers of Australian agencies to spy digitally and online. And I want to update listeners on these new important laws, but First, I think I'd, I'd like to set a bit of context around what we actually mean when we talk about electronic surveillance. I mean, I tend to think about things like the collection of metadata concerning how people behave online, and maybe even things kind of a bit more spooky, like listening in on people's digital conversations. Dom, is that is that broadly your kind of understanding as well?
1: Yeah, that's um, broadly what I think of, um, particularly about the distinction you raise between uh, what we call metadata or telecommunications data, which is data about the conversation or the interaction and the content, but so much of what we're doing um, and how we're living our lives these days occurs over, um, over the internet, over electronic devices. It's become a really important uh, source of uh, evidence and intelligence.
3: And Lizzie, do you think, um, have we kind of missed anything there in terms of what we think about when we talk about electronic surveillance? Because obviously the technology is kind of changing so quickly around us.
0: Yeah, I suppose the only thing I'd add is that uh, often when we think about surveillance, we think about government, but um, surveillance capitalism does exist. So companies collecting huge amounts of data, which they hold in all sorts of new and sophisticated ways. uh, And that is a data set that Government at times seeks to access uh, for its own intelligence purposes as well. So I think it brings in the private sector to some degree, sometimes as a willing participant, but sometimes as required by law, by government to access information. I mean, there's also sets of powers that are designed to actually effectively go after particular people and maybe particular groups of people, as opposed to, say, using data as a um, as a set or, or metadata as a set to analyse trends and again, that often involves using uh, technology created by private sector companies either to facilitate that access or to tap into that particular network. Mm.
3: So I want to give our listeners a bit of an overview of these two new important national security laws. I think there's actually been quite a lot of national security law reform in recent years that might have missed people's attention. So the the first um, piece of legislation is, is fairly simple. One, it's called the Foreign Intelligence Legislation Amendment, and this has streamlined ASIO's ability to spy on Australians who are uh, suspected of collaborating with foreign governments. But then we also have the Surveillance Legislation Amendment law, uh, which some people call the the Dark Web Act, um, as it improves the ability or is it meant to improve the ability of the Australian Federal Police and the Criminal Intelligence Commission to collect intelligence and evidence online, including in a in the dark web context. Um, one of the interesting characteristics of this act is the ability to, is, it's giving a warrant to these agencies to forcibly take over people's online accounts. Uh, another thing it's also doing is it gives these agencies the ability to perform what they call data disruption to prevent online offending, which I think I take that as meaning to kind of degrade how data is stored and how it's sent and Accessed. I guess Dom, I'm interested to get your reaction around this idea of, of of a data disruption warrant, a warrant that exists solely for the purpose of causing disruption as opposed to collecting intelligence or evidence. Is is this a kind of a new thing?
1: Well, it's certainly the the agencies who um, requested this change say that it's uh, uh, the ability to dis- to do data disruption is something that they don't or they didn't have before this act was passed, and that they require required to be able to do um, their law enforcement and intelligence activities effectively. Um, however, this move towards um, trying to disrupt and prevent crime, as opposed to merely investigate and then prosecute it, um, is not entirely new in the, uh, I guess, the analogue, the, the non-online world. Um, this shift to preventing crime has been going on for quite, um, quite some time and it's particularly notable in the um, laws that were passed immediately after the terrorist attacks of the 11th of September 2001 where we saw a real shift in the criminal law in relation to countering terrorism um, towards trying to disrupt the activities of a terrorist group or a, a terrorist to prevent that terrorist act from even uh, coming about. And there, so there are a variety of different legal mechanisms that the governments, various governments, put in place to allow um, intelligence agencies and law enforcement to be able to do this disruption. So in that sense, um, the what I call the Slade Act is really um, extending those sorts of powers and that mindset about how... Um, our law enforcement agencies are to go about their business to the online world
3: and, and so lizzie when we when we turn to looking at the impact of this act on digital rights, which is obviously what your organization is quite strong at advocating for, what are the aspects of it that perhaps make you a little bit concerned or, or you'd like some more clarity over
0: yeah well, I think the point that Dom's making that it's proactive, you know, that there's precedence for that in our previous laws is true. But I, I sort of see the data disruption warrant as being much more about facilitating essentially state-sponsored hacking. So often when we hear about cyber attacks, people talk about it emanating from somewhere like Russia or China uh, and that this is a new kind of frontier in international relations. Well, this is, I think, a warrant that allows the government to do that legally and uh, in circumstances where I think there's probably quite a serious question around the public interest of that kind of activity, or also how it might affect citizens' digital security. Because of course, when you start engaging in, you know, cyber warfare of this kind, you are inviting retribution as well. Uh, And so I sort of see the data disruption warrant as a sign that our government you know, intends to use this as a potential um, weapon in its artillery in, in terms of engaging in international relations. And that that potentially has quite significant implications for people's right to data security, to be able to use systems um, that they rely on to do everyday activities confidently and without fear that they might be taken down um, in some international dispute of some kind. I mean, more generally, I, I think the idea of an account takeover warrant where you, where uh, an agency can come in, take over a warrant, do what it says, and also, you know, delete um, data, act as that person without that person necessarily knowing is pr- particularly problematic because that obviously puts people's security at risk and the like. Um, and that's a, a big problem. Um, and I, I, don't, I don't think this is compliant with basic human rights principles, of course, uh, but, you know, I think it does symbolise perhaps a different direction or a more advanced direction in how our government seeks to create the web as a place in which uh, agencies, law enforcement and national security agencies, are able to use digital tools for their own ends without necessarily thinking about the consequences that might be brought home and visited upon individuals whose rights might be violated.
3: But I suppose in, in looking through this legislation, there is what would appear to me to be quite significant layers of oversight. We have the um, Inspector General of Intelligence and Security being being brought in to look over um, the AFP's use of these powers, which is which is fairly new. And then we have, of course, the kind of existing layers of oversight of the Commonwealth Ombudsman, there's the Parliamentary Joint Committee on Intelligence and Security, have also got some mandatory reporting. Uh, or, I mean, to, to you, Dom, do you think that the the layers of oversight that are in place are sufficient to help kind of guard against some of the issues that Lizzie's raised from a a digital rights point of view?
1: That's a tough question, Will, because what this um, act does is really change uh, the way oversight is conducted. Um, And I um, have confidence in our institutions, such as the Ombudsman and the Inspector General of Intelligence and Security. They've done um, an excellent job. Uh, in making sure that our national security apparatus, with which I'm most familiar, operate according to the law. But this bill grants very extensive new powers um, to the AFP. As you've mentioned, it's um, unusual for the Inspector General of Intelligence and Security to give um, to be given oversight over um, the AFP. So there's a lot of new things going on in the oversight space here. So um, the ha- the, our oversight agency uh, bodies have excellent track records and great reputations. Um, I can only hope as a citizen that they're able to um, properly oversight uh, these extensive powers. I
0: would just say, Will, as well, I'm I'm a bit concerned about the Parliamentary Joint Committee in particular. I mean, both of the pieces of legislation we're talking about now absolutely flew through the Parliament um, in less than 24 hours, I think, in both cases and the foreign intelligence legislation amendment act the first one that you spoke about um that was only given to parliamentarians on the day the, the report from the intelligence um committee the parliamentary committee that's designed to review this this, these kinds of bills was not pro, was not acted upon, but also not released publicly to parliamentarians beforehand. So what we're seeing is a real circumvention of those parliamentary processes that are designed to be there for this kind of accountability and scrutiny. So they can exist formally, but if they're not actually serving any useful purpose and parliamentarians are kind of being deliberately kept into the dark until the last minute, that's a pretty concerning precedent. Uh, so I think we shouldn't necessarily assume that just because a lot of these groups and agencies and committees are doing good work, that that will necessarily be taken into account by the government. And in fact, the government and the opposition, I should say, have shown uh, an interest in trying to minimise that kind of scrutiny as much, much as possible. And to use that, I think, oh, well, I expect that they will use that that kind of tactic in going into the future as well.
3: Yeah, and I, and I certainly note that um, there are quite a number of crossbench MPs and senators who pointed to the the ASIO amendment, um, exactly with that point that that it had, they felt that it had been sprung on them. Um, but because we have you know two major parties um, in the opposition party and the party of government having this bipartisan consensus on national security legislation, it's it's very difficult, I suppose, in that parliamentary context for there, for there always to be the kind of fulsome, um, wide-ranging debate that I guess certain members of parliament would like to see. And I and I think from that debate is actually how the public is able to actually understand and either support or not support the the things that are being considered and this this kind of goes to something i've been thinking about recently in in the sense that we have had these rafts of new pieces of national security legislation that are happening pretty happening pretty thick and fast and being driven by a lot of technological change is the layer of kind of secrecy and the kind of low public profile around our security agencies, is that actually perhaps getting in the way of, a, of a, a fulsome public understanding of what these agencies are trying to do? Do they actually perhaps need to be a little bit more open about the operational need for these pieces of legislation to the public so that we can have that clarity? I mean, I guess what I'm asking is, is the norm of secrecy that we have had in place in Australia for so long, is it as valid as it has been in the past? Should we be contesting that?
1: I think that the agencies need to continue to step out of the shadows. Um, I uh, commend the Director-General of ASIO um, for his um, annual updates that he now gives. He's done two in a row, um, giving his annual threat assessment. And in both of the speeches that he's given in the last two years, he does make a point of mentioning the how ASIO has used the new powers that um, Parliament had bestowed on them. So, yes, I think that it's really important for the agencies to contribute to um, the public discourse to the extent that they're able to. And I understand the need for operational security, of course. But if, um, if the people of Australia through their Parliament are to continue to grant New new laws and new powers to these agencies, then those agencies need to be able to articulate the case clearly in public why those powers are needed. And this is a particular um, issue when we're talking about legislation that um, deals with the online environment because it is often harder to make the case um, for why these particular powers are needed because they're perceived to be so intrusive and the agencies are very well placed to explain using carefully crafted hypotheticals, how they might use these powers and what they think the limits are. I would just add as well, like we've seen a
0: a petition online um, in respect of the Identify and Disrupt Bill, or NOW Act, I should say, um, where 125,000 people have signed it, just about, and it's a call for its repeal. So, the continuation of this conduct whereby we're just expected that agencies have a social licence for this and that people find the concept of privacy too difficult or or it's dismissed as being with some fatalism that, you know, essentially people give up their right to privacy all the time when they go on Facebook, so why should they expect anything from the government? These kind of facile arguments, I just don't think, cut it anymore. I think people are increasingly aware that agencies might be engaging in behaviour that isn't in the public interest or that serves their own interests, perhaps ahead of citizens' rights. And that that mandate can't is not viable. It can't continue. Uh, It's really what produced someone like Edward Snowden, who revealed the existence of um, many programs, including the Prism program. And the Prism program, to my mind, looks a lot like the Network Activity Warrant, whereby companies, uh, sorry, agencies, are able to tap into the networks of companies for intelligence purposes and essentially scoop up all the data that they want. I mean, I don't think these things will continue to stand. You will see increasing um, disquiet from the public, who I do think increasingly understand the complex decisions that have to be made like this and don't see their rights being taken into account. And it, it may be that also technology companies respond as well by advocating for user interests as they did in the wake of the Snowden revelations by introducing encryption as standard. So... There's multiple ways in which um, a continuation of behaviour where there's no social license, really, uh, or agencies don't seem to feel that they're under any obligation to obtain a social license for ever expanding powers. I, I just don't think that's sustainable.
3: Well, Lizzie, you also like you mentioned the role of private um, companies in in all of this. I think it's it's interesting to observe, say, the the toller legislation that has kind of garnered a lot of controversy with um the various mechanisms that are in place in that legislation for both voluntary private sector assistance and then involuntary assistance with security agencies i'd note that the vast majority of this assistance is happening on a voluntary basis do you think the in in this discussion about uh, digital rights and the encroachment on on people's digital rights do you think the private the private sector companies are being held as accountable as perhaps they should be um, as alongside the agencies themselves?
0: I mean, it's an interesting question because I, I often work in spaces uh, where we're talking about holding government to account for increased powers or we're talking about holding corporations to account for, for violating people's privacy. And I think in both instances, users are pretty sceptical of both these um, central poles of power, I suppose, Uh, I think it would be um, funny to to describe corporations as somehow escaping uh, criticism for their failure to respect people's privacy. So I think, in in fact, people see more and more that these companies aren't to be trusted. They use them for different purposes. They don't want this kind of uh, situation to exist, but the the laws permit um, essentially a political economy and a business model justified by surveillance capitalism. Having said that, I think there there are ways in which we could... Reform um, both these fields, as in limit what private companies collect, and then that for therefore limiting the kinds of comp- of data that can be uh, then accessed by government uh, when they seek to use one of these warrants or they use a subpoena and the like. And that's mainly through privacy legislation. And, you know, it's telling, I think, that our Privacy Act is currently under review because it's hopelessly out of date Mm -hmm. and that we'd be acting uh, advocating for a human rights-based approach to privacy that sees it not just as this narrow uh, idea of information management, but actually about allowing people to participate in online life without the constant threat of being watched. And I think there's an increasing uh, acceptance from the community that uh, both corporations and governments don't respect that right and that will um, take form in lots of different ways advocating for privacy reform is one but as I mentioned it might also involve using different products or um, being attracted to different ways of engaging in online life different kinds of platforms different kinds of of tools that might mean that um, this this mode of operating doesn't continue
3: Dom, I'm, I'm interested to get your kind of perspective on this because obviously a lot of the corporations that we're talking about here are transnational, transnational companies, um, where the data might be being, the data they collect might be being stored, you know, well and truly outside of an Australian jurisdiction. If we're trying to kind of regulate and create laws around, um, private businesses, you know, being more accountable for the digital rights of Australians, are we up against a pretty hard task because of that international dimension?
1: It certainly makes what they're trying to do more difficult um, because – and you you see this in um, some of the commentary from the parliamentary joint committee in their report on the, the Slate Act, where um, increasingly there's a concern that from companies that if they're to comply with the laws that are uh, put in place in Australia, they're going to be um, in breach of laws in other parts of uh, of the world. And um, this is one of the one of the um, difficult things for domestic legislators is the way in which this uh, division between uh, the international realm and the domestic realm is breaking down. Um, Our our legal system in Australia is still very much based on sort of 19th century principles Drawn from um, British law, that is that assert um, the legislation has power over the geographical area of Australia. For example, if we're talking about the Commonwealth government, and yet in the twenty first century, we're ha- we're making laws that affect, as you say, companies that aren't necessarily um, entirely headquartered here, where the data doesn't reside in Australia. So that makes it. Um, It increases the complexity of the legal issues that underpin the legislation. I don't think that's a reason for Australia not to become involved in this. The kind of rights that um, Lizzie's talked about are too important and, by the same token, the kind of threats that the agencies are trying to guard against are also transnational. So Australia can't sit on its hands and say this is all too difficult, but it does mean that our legislative approaches need to be uh, very sophisticated.
2: We'll be right back after this short break. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems. And people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists, and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday.
0: Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems. But getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.
3: To turn turn to the discussion of the threats that are specifically being pointed out here um, with, with some of these new pieces of legislation, I'd note that with the Slade Act, Kind of alongside terrorism and organised crime as being these kind of key transnational threats. That in arguing for these new powers, the governments really emphasised um, how these these new warrants would help address things like um, online child exploitation, uh, which isn't t- traditionally thought of as a national security problem. And then similarly, we've had the Labour MP Julian Simmons has also suggested that these powers should be used to consider uh, to counteract. Um, domestic violence and to support domestic violence investigations. So I guess, you know, when we're talking about trying to address these fairly urgent problems online that I think we all agree are, you know, pretty terrible things that need to be um, dealt with, how do we, you know, in the public debate and then practically, how do we, how do we really carve out space for uh, digital privacy? You know, take, for example, um, things like encryption, you know, encrypted communications like, where do how do we find a balance for my right as a consumer to to purchase and use um, encrypted communications with the the um, the need to try and you know do things like preventing child exploitation or investigating domestic violence, which are two issues that government and the opposition are kind of put into the frame. Lizzie, I'm interested in kind of your response.
0: Yeah, I mean, obviously, I find it a bit tiresome sometimes when these justifications are put because that's not how the legislation is drafted either. The qual you know, the the idea that they' are only reserved for very serious offences is is not reflected in the drafting. um serious offences defined in different ways, but it's generally. Um, offences that attract a relatively short uh, term of imprisonment, um, which doesn't, you know, encompasses a lot more offences than just what we're talking about here, these most serious ones which are discussed in the media. So it really frustrates me that the public debate is always just handed essentially to, or turns out to be on the terms of these agencies. And I I would like to have a bit more of an inquiring media and, and perhaps discussion. I'm grateful for this podcast investigating these kinds of questions. But, you know, I think we need to look beyond this and see how it's drafted and see what actually, what problems it creates as well as problems that it potentially solves. And it's interesting that we raise domestic violence as an issue because probably the biggest concern that lots of domestic violence advocates talk about in respect of digital technology is how it's so easily hacked and used by offenders to uh, further victimise the people that they've caused harms to. And, and usually this is because of things like, you know, unencrypted um, travel channels of communication that are able to be used by abusers, as well as things like not being able to turn off locational data. Like, if we're actually going to talk seriously about the problems faced by survivors of domestic violence, there's a zillion things you can do in the digital rights space to protect them, but also uh, out in the, the real world to give them uh, a safe escape. And that's not really what we're talking about here. What we're really talking about is giving agency the power to do what they want in their interests and then the rights of people, I think, are this afterthought that doesn't really come into the equation. And too often, in my view, the rights of citizens come, in, come into conflict with uh, the interests of national security agencies that have their own objective. Um, and you know, maybe I'm a victim of the experience of, of or, or I'm a consequence of the ex- the experience of agencies not actually justifying their powers publicly. Because that's my impression as a mm-hmm. as a. Uh, discerning reader as a observer of the digital rights space, that is how the debate is conducted. And I feel like I'm quite cynical, but for good reason, because so many times in the past, the trust of um, citizens is taken for granted and then uh, violated. And that, I think, just doesn't cut it anymore. And that's why we have more people questioning this. That's why we have, you know, 125,000 people signing a petition. They don't accept the justification that's put, and that creates distrust in government, which has all sorts of long-term consequences for the erosion of social democracy, which I think are very problematic. And I would hope that if agencies are serious about acting in the public interest, they would make a greater effort to address that and understand that as a long-term consequence of uh, pitching the debate in this way.
1: The other distinction that, while it hasn't quite broken down, um, is getting much more blurred, is the distinction between um, national security legislation sort of, in a pure sense, and a legislation that's for a law inform- for a law enforcement or other type of crime um, um, purpose, and I we've seen that blurring of these, uh, or putting together in one piece of legislation, powers that can be used for a, a pure national security purpose, um, with powers that can be used for an uh, what I call an ordinary crime purpose. Now. Preventing um, both or securing Australia from national security threats as well as ensuring that we ordinary citizens are safe from crime is really important. But I worry about the fact that these very hard-edged powers are all put into one very complicated bit of legislation and it's very hard to disaggregate the arguments then. What might be um, a a very significant power that might be appropriate to um, safeguard Australia from the most severe... National security threats will sit alongside a power that can be used um, for for an ordinary crime purpose, and that 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 mudding of the waters does concern me
3: to look at this from a slightly different angle it's it's interesting to look at if we are going to continue to expand the range of issues that fall under the umbrella of national security it's then interesting to look at all the different things our national security agencies then have to spend their time targeting and addressing and how you go about triaging an ever-growing range of supposed national security threats surely from kind of an operational point of view uh actually probably spreads our agencies quite thin um and in a technological environment where you know you know they're continually struggling to kind of keep up with um online criminals and then malicious state actors who are very very good at adapting to new technology um, there is, I think there's also potentially a risk that, um, you know, our agencies end up being pointed in too many different directions and aren't able to perform their role strategically, uh, and maybe drop the ball on a greater threat, um, that over having to investigate something that's perhaps not, shouldn't necessarily be dealt with in a national security context. Um, something I want to pick up on, um, as well, which I don't think is often discussed a lot publicly is when we have agencies collecting more and more private data um how confident can we actually be that that data is actually being in a physical and you know technological way actually stored in a way that's safe you know we hear about um you know every now and then these kind of big hacks against government servers you know you think about um the incidents against the census against the um even the CSIRO hacks on parliament these types of things should we actually be starting to get a little bit more concerned about the security of the data as well as just the reasoning for which it's collected I'm interested Lizzie do you have any observations on that
0: Yeah, this is something that actually Edward Snowden has talked about. He talks about how privacy and security are often treated as counterposed, but in fact, fact they're mutually supportive. That if you have people who are able to keep their data private, uh, it creates less of an attack surface from a security perspective. And I think there's some utility in, in thinking about it in that way. I mean, he was talking about the WannaCry ransomware attack in which an exploit that was identified by the NSA but wasn't revealed to Microsoft until the last minute was then um, able to be used by criminals uh, to get access to people's data and lock them out of their computer, causing a massive amount of damage. You know, the NHS, for example, had all sorts of problems in the UK, um, keeping their data systems alive, accessing medical records, you know, planning and dispatching ambulances and the like. So, there's a real um, utility, I think, in thinking about privacy and people's capacity to secure their systems, to manage their own data, and avoid then creating uh, a, a larger surface of attack for for um, hostile actors. I mean, that's one of my big concerns, in fact, about TOLA, that uh, essentially we could create exploits in in encrypted systems. We, the national security agencies could do that. But, you know, that's a lot of agencies who have access to those powers to be able to issue a technological a technical capability notice, including the top officers in various police forces. So you could have the top police officer in somewhere like the Northern Territory issuing a technical capability notice to create an, a backdoor in an encrypted system. And then he's got to try and keep that secure. Uh, and mm. it's hot property on the black market, it's, pretty, it's a pretty valuable tool. And we're trusting that these agencies will be able to do that. And uh, it's, it's not easy, the NSA didn't manage to do it. So I'm not sure why we should assume Uh, that agencies in Australia will be able to do that either. Um, So it's not even just data. It's also technical capabilities that might get out into the wild and cause a huge amount of damage. And I think it was really interesting, the point that you were making before, Will, about how we avoid agencies losing focus of what they're supposed to do. And I would have thought advocating around securing our systems is in the interests of national security. Our digital systems need to be protected from hostile actors, uh, whether they're criminals or state-sponsored hackers. And so that surely is a key component of national security, but that is rarely talked about, I think, in this context. In fact, the only way these debates really happen is agencies need more invasive powers, more um, capacities to exploit access, um, to accumulate data, when in fact, probably one of the things that we need to protect the most is the integrity of our digital systems, so that they're not subject to attack or, or liable to be um, raided and, and, and used against us. And I don't think this kind of discussion really happens. National security is treated as synonymous with giving agencies power instead of perhaps digital security for citizens, which I think is a key component of any, any debate we have about national security.
3: Well, I think we've had a a really great kind of exploration of the range of issues at play here when we think about electronic surveillance. It's an area that appears to be shifting so quickly because of the technological change at play which makes it very difficult to, to legislate around and perhaps even more difficult to report on and discuss publicly. So I really appreciate both of you giving of your time and your your expertise and experience to kind of have this discussion. Um, I think it's been really informative. And uh, Dom Del Potza, Lizzie O'Shea, thanks so much for joining us on the National Security Podcast.
0: Thanks so much, Will. Thank you, Will.
2: Well, that's it for today. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, thanks for tuning in.